All right, Daniel chapter five, if you have your Bibles, let's go. Picking up in verse one, a number of years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. A number of years later, Daniel chapter four, we were looking at King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four, if you remember, had most powerful man in the world at this time was arrogant, full of pride. The scriptures will say his heart was hardened with pride. And so God sends a dream to him about how basically it's this beautiful tree and in the dream the tree gets cut down and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar wants to know the meaning so he calls, in, calls Daniel in and Daniel explains to him, their heart's been hardened with pride and, the, and, and God is going to deal with you. And so 12 months transpire um, and King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't humble himself and so the dream happens. And after the, at the end of this dream, we think that Nebuchadnezzar spends somewhere between seven months and seven years in, in basically banished to the wilderness. It says he lived like an animal. He ate grass. Um, he kind of lived with like, like a cow, basically. He comes back out of that and he declares for the rest of his rule, there is no other God but God, but Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar will, will die of natural causes in peace. And then this, we pick up in Daniel chapter five a number of years later. So we're somewhere about 20 to 27 years post Nebuchadnezzar's exile event. That's where we find ourselves. Now, King Belshazzar is actually not the king of Babylon at this time. The king of Babylon at this time is a guy named Nabonidus. But if, if you remember that early in Daniel when we were studying it, uh, we, we come across this god Marduk that we've talked about, which was the Babylonian god. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was a worshiper of, of Marduk and he will set up a, a huge statue to this god and force people to worship this god. And so when Nebuchadnezzar has his epiphany about the real God, he puts aside all these priests of this temple of Marduk. And so when Nebuchadnezzar dies, they're basically become, they're, the landscape of Babylon as a city moves into what we would call a, maybe a religious civil war. All these priests that used to be, because you think about it, if you study world history, Religion and politics kind of always interplay. The quest for power, who's in charge, who gets the benefits and the favor. And so what happens when Nebuchadnezzar passes is all of these priests who had been pushed aside by Nebuchadnezzar because of his belief in Yahweh now rise and try to step back into authority. The problem is the new king, Nabonidus, doesn't follow Marduk. He follows a different Babylonian god. If you remember, the Babylonian culture had a pantheon of gods, so there was a multiplicity of gods they would worship. He follows a god named San. San's the moon god. And so Nabonidus gets tired of this civil war type issue and says, forget it. I'm just going to move the headquarters for the Babylonian empire someplace else. And he transfers his rule to a place called Tiamat. And what he does is he puts his son, great dad moment, hey, this is chaos, you deal with it. And he leaves. And so he leaves his son as a regent or a co-regent or a vassal, which means this Belshazzar is in authority over the city, but I want you to get the picture in your head of who he really was. Think super fraternity trust fund kid. His entire life he's grown up with wealth, he's grown up with power, he has almost no responsibility because he's not running the empire, he's just living in the city. Let's pick back up in our text. While Belshazzar was drinking, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that he and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. 
So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank toasts from them to honor their gods, their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At that very moment, they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote and his face turned pale with fear. Such terror gripped him that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters and astrologers and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will wear a gold chain around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men came in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed. His face turned ashen white. His nobles too were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall and she said to Belshazzar, long live the king. Don't be so pale and afraid about this. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom as though he himself were a god. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, has a sharp mind and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king asked him, Are you Daniel, who was exiled from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you, and that you're filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read this writing on the wall, but they cannot. I am told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor, and you will wear a gold chain around your neck. You'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts or give them to someone else. But I will tell you what this writing means. Your majesty, the most holy God gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill, spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor, disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were hardened with pride, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped from his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of an animal, and he lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all of this, yet you have not humbled yourself, for you have defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor know anything at all. You have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write a message. This is the message that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And this is what these words mean. Mene means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have failed the test. Parson means divided. 
your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes, a gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom of heaven. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. All right. I want to approach this a couple different ways. One, I want to get some feedback, see what jumps out to us, and then I want to share some phrases that jumped out to me as I was looking at it. So thoughts, what, what jumps out in that story to us? Hardened with pride. Anything else? What's that? The cups. The cups. Daniel's authority was remembered. That's a great insight. Anything else? Anything that jumps out? Phrases that jump out? Ideas that jump out? And you're like, yeah, Zeke. He didn't want anything for speaking God's truth. It's like my favorite phrase in scripture. You can keep your stuff. Anything else? Sovereignty of, God. Sovereignty of God. It struck me that there was not a grace period when, when he already had known what the Lord did with the previous generation. That's an incredible insight. What she said was there wasn't the same grace period with Belshazzar that there was with other kings. Any other thoughts, ideas? The humility of the ruler. Yeah, he already knew. I want to work on it. You basically, I love it because you've highlighted all the important ideas and phrases. I want to go and take a look at these and apply them and ask, okay, so how do we, how do we move from reading a story to applying it to our lives? The first one that jumps out, if we're going to just take them in order in the text that God appoints anyone he desires. I love this phrase that Daniel will make. That God appoints anyone he desires. Could I just say it this way? God appoints us where he wants us. How many have ever been dissatisfied with the appointment of God in your life? So what does it look like to live with that knowledge? God appoints us where he wants us. For me, what it, what, it, what it communicates is I need to learn how to come under that authority. It doesn't necessarily mean I even have to like it. I would love to just release this to say, look, being faithful to the appointment of God doesn't mean you like it. It just means you understand God's in control. He's sovereign, as was spoken, and I'm going to surrender to that reality. So how do we live out of, how do we live out our positions if he's actually giving them. Because for me, it, it, must, it challenges me instantly that I can no longer, or should no longer, maybe is a better way to say it, I should no longer be willing to criticize my position, to complain about my position, or to rebel in my position, because I understand that God appoints where he wants. For me, the concern in it is, Ambition teaches me that my, what I really need is to move past my moment. Honor teaches me I need to embrace my moment. Daniel will say to Belshazzar, and you knew all of this. The word knew here in the Hebrew is important. 
It, liter- it, it means in, in simplest definition to be made aware of, be certain of, or to encounter. And it indicates that in some way, Belshazzar had come into the knowledge of who Yahweh was. When I first read this, I missed that word. And, and, and if by missing that word, it's, it changes the way we would apply it. Because at first, it almost seems like God's holding a guy accountable that has no history with him. And the first inkling is, that's a little harsh. That's terrifying is what that really is. But the real word in the Hebrew says, Daniel's statement to him is, you, you, had, in, you had experience. You knew, you knew who he was. I think it could have been personal knowledge or maybe just connected knowledge through the way God had dealt with the world around him. Maybe it was people recounting the stories of, of how Yahweh had handled Nebuchadnezzar and, and or, or maybe he had heard the stories about Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We don't know that. But what we do know is that Belshazzar was held accountable by God for what he should have known. And I would submit that there's an assertion in the text that Belshazzar was expected to know and learn how God had dealt with people. He was expected to know what God wanted from people by the history that he had been made privy to. So for us, I would submit that we're responsible to learn of God and his kingdom from the lessons to which we have access via history and our personal encounter with him. Daniel will go on and say, yet you've not humbled yourself. And what we have is Belshazzar not learning from history and instead committing the same behavioral problems that had already been judged by God. This is gonna be a hard statement, but I would submit that violating God's law, his rule, his desires, his established order, the way the scriptures teach us to live, that violating those things are viewed by heaven as arrogance. Daniel will say, you've not honored the God who gives you the breath of life. And so what we understand from that is honoring God is directly connected to choosing the behaviors that align with his heart, with what he teaches, and with his character. That's what it means to honor God. So for us, from this text, I would suggest that we choose to humble ourselves and that we understand that living according to what the scriptures teach is really what that means. So we could, sometimes for me, there's a fun exercise. If, if I don't really know how to grab onto what it says, I look at it in its reciprocal. Remember math, reciprocal value? Remember if you want to figure out how to create one, you take one quarter and you multiply it by what? Oh man, math has not been that long ago. Yeah, <laughs> multiply it by four over one, right? Remember you do that thing, you set them up, you put your little dot between them and you get one over one. Or you four over four and it equals one. So if you look at a statement, it's reciprocal value. We could say it this way, to live outside of the guidelines of God's heart, character, and protocol is directly dishonoring his authority. Daniel will go on and say, not only does God give you the breath of life, he controls your destiny. 
I would love for us to just consider that phrase for the weight that's in it. He controls my destiny. If we look at the story, Belshazzar and his thousand people around him were worshiping dead idols. Gold, silver, wood, iron. As I was looking at that this week, a thought hit me that was important for me. To believe in or worship something that we know is dead and inanimate is the ultimate arrogance because what it really says is, I'm worshiping something I know cannot speak to me because I actually want to be my own God. And then Daniel will give him the definition. These, can you imagine being in the room and hanging out and you've, you've, got a, you've got a couple good cabs open and there's a bunch of people laughing and all of a sudden a finger comes through and begins to write on the wall. How many have ever used the phrase handwriting on the wall? This is actually where it's from. I would never use this again given the context. It is not a good thing. If God has to come into your home and write something on the wall, it means you have arrogantly chosen to not listen. So Daniel will give these, these words, and I want to take these words and, and apply them to our lives. Mene, mene, teko, parson. The language is about evaluation, inspection, and reward. The word numbered here, here's what we can pull out of this. We are given favor, responsibility, and a season to function in. These are big statements. God is watching these and in all reality, they are revocable. That there is an expected stewardship we should all be considering. I would love to invite us to consider God expects things from my life. Wade, we are being evaluated for faithfulness. There are balances or scales that God alone is in control of and what they represent is the what he's expecting from us, what he knows we're capable of and what he's inviting us to accomplish with our lives. This life, church, is not just ours to choose and direct. We are under the authority of heaven. And we can either align with that authority and press into it and learn from him and succeed, or we can rebel against it, choose our own path and be found lacking. And then this word divided. You see, we're not living a game. What we do with our 70 years matters. You say, why 70 years? That's what the scripture says is promised to the righteous. One well, past 70, then you're awesome. Good job, keep going. But our faithfulness to his purposes in our lifetime is important. And it's so important, in fact, that he is willing, God is willing to remove the favor of that calling from us and grant it to others if we fail to appropriate it. I know the weight of this text. It's one of the most sobering passages of scripture for me. If we consider it as it stands, it deals with a man who's not even a follower of God, 
Why, do, why is that important? Because we, we so have set our minds in our day and in our time that this is a belief set and this is somehow, my, it's my religious choice. And the reality is, if we look at this and we allow it to speak to us just in the strength of the scriptures, what it represents is God stepping in to humanity, to a man who's never claimed belief and saying, you're still under my authority and I still expect from you. And if God in his mercy will deal with a pagan that way, who's never professed belief, how much more in his mercy will he deal with those of us who've declared that we're his? This text has to influence our understanding of what it means to be faithful where he's placed us. It has to teach us how to pursue excellence with great humility. And it should cause in us a great inspection of self where we would ask ourselves this question, am I fully living into what he has called me, led me, and invited me to be? My question for us in this is, will we allow this text to really impact us the way it should? Life's not a game. There is a measuring process, and I think some of us are so afraid of that because it feels so ungracious. It's not ungracious at all. We have, we have a Father in heaven who has great expectations and dreams for us, beautiful things he wants to accomplish through us. Paul will teach that we were created for good works in Christ, that there is this beautiful thing God wants to do through our lives. But it begins with a humility that says, I will surrender my life and I will allow him to lead me. I will live as he says, period. Let's stand.